Good day. You're listening to Radio Al-Hara. It is the beginning of March 2023. I'm Stefan Christophe in Giojiage, Montreal, and I'm contributing my monthly artist interview here on Radio Al-Hara. I'm going to be featuring a conversation about a documentary film called Daughter of Lost Bird. This is a project that was created by Brooke Sweeney, who's an Indigenous filmmaker, and it looks at the ways that a system of forced adaptation targeting and impacting Indigenous families has affected one person. We, through this film, see and learn about the life of Kendra Malachuk. And it looks at how adoption in the context of a colonial reality in the United States affects Indigenous communities and an Indigenous individual. This is a, a, a system that has passed across generations and it has worked to disrupt Indigenous family networks and culture, often affecting relationship to culture, but also relationship to language and traditional practices. The forced adoption of Indigenous children really illustrates in so many clear ways the colonial reality in North America or Turtle Island. This is also true north of the colonial borderline in Canada. I think Daughter of Lost Bird is a very personal film, but it also, also importantly highlights the ways that there is an intersectional impact on a systemic level. It's a beautiful work also. I'd really encourage people to look up this project, daughterofalostbird.com is their website. I got a chance to speak with both the filmmaker, Brooke Sweeney, and the protagonist, Kendra, for this exchange. I'm sharing it here with you on Radio Al-Hara as part of my monthly artist interview series. Thank you both to Brooke and Kendra for being on this show. I'm Stefan Christophe in Montreal, Giojiage. I share a new interview every month, the first Friday of the month. You can find my archives at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. I'm always happy to contribute to Radio Al-Hara and keep it locked. Free Palestine. Here's my interview on Daughter of a Lost Bird. Thank you for listening. Um, maybe we could just first start, uh, Brooke, for people who maybe haven't had a chance to see the film. Um, can you just uh, share briefly what the film's about and some of the motivations for you to, to work on this piece. Sure. So Daughter of a Lost Bird is a feature-length documentary that um, is a character journey um, and character-driven. And character sounds weird because Kendra, who's the protagonist and also on the show today, um, is not a character. It's her life. <laughs> so anyway, but that's how I framed it. Um but the, the film follows her as she reconnects with her birth mother um, who was adopted out and, um, and the two of them also um, reconnect and reconcile their identity, you know, kind of couched in, um, you know, all of the history of what the United States government has done to remove Native people from um, their heritage and their cultures. Thank you so much for the breakdown, Brooke. Um, all what the United States government has done, um, there's a lot in there. Uh, there's also a lot here north of the colonial borderline in Canada, in quotations. Um, but 
maybe we'll turn to you, um, Kendra, about um, your decision to feature your life in this way. It's a very revealing film. It's very um, moving at the same time. And, you know, it does address a lot of the systemic issues that Brooke was sharing. But what's very powerful about this film is it's not really a talking headstock. It's about life and all the ups and downs of your life in different moments. So maybe if you could share a bit about that context of your decision to be part of this this work and why it was important for you. Well, we've decided it was a collective decision. Brooke and I have gone back and forth about whose bright idea it was to document this process. Um, but but we can I, I can say that we at least agreed to make this to make this a documentary and not just have Brooke and I are very good friends and were well before we started this film. Um, so we agreed that it was a good idea for me to find my tribe, uh, and that very likely the way to finding where I came from was, you know, finding my birth mother. Um, so agreeing to document it was not that big a deal to me in comparison to the the seismic effort it was going to be to to find my birth mother and um that was a much more emotional challenging process having cameras around was less of an issue i think because partly because i'm an actor and i'm comfortable with cameras um and partly because the the personal not dissimilarly to the film the personal is more challenging than and then the context of of that personal experience was something that I think I was uh so ignorant to the context of governmental policies and the incredibly complicated but very clear act of uh forced assimilation that I didn't even see myself in until until we were in the process of making this film. So making the decision to document it was not difficult. Um, and, and then interestingly, as we continued in the process, there were definitely moments that the personal experience of finding April and then going back to my Lummi nation and meeting the community, um, was very hard. And the reason that I continued doing it was because we were already on this journey of documenting this, this process. And so they were very intertwined from, from the beginning. Um, Brooke, for people who, um, aren't aware of sort of active, uh, engagements and challenging of this history in the United States, as we see in your, in, in, in your film here in Canada, there is, um, you know, a lot of campaigning that's happened across generations about residential schools and forced adoptions. Um, And sometimes those links across the border aren't necessarily made, I mean, maybe in broad strokes. But could you just share a bit about some of the policies that this story is addressing? Yeah, so so there was a policy that it wasn't a law, which, you know, some people get confused about. But 
Um, in the 50s and 60s, and sorry, I don't like how I don't have like a mind for dates, but <laughs> there was this um, policy enacted by the Bureau of Indian Affairs um, uh, to remove Native kids from their homes called the Indian Adoption Project. And, um, th you know, that was part of like a multi-pronged effort, you know, to um, and kind of during this termination area to get rid of tribes. Um, and I think it was like, you know, kind of ha happening in tandem or almost in lockstep with what was happening in Canada with the 60s scoop. I mean, you know, there's residential schools that you guys have, and we also had boarding schools. Um, and a lot of the revelations about, you know, the abuses and, um, you know, the trauma that came from those things were similar here in the United States. Um, with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is under the Department of Interior um, at the time with the Indian Adoption Project, I, I think it, at, at the beginning it started with around 300 kids and it lasted for uh, like, less than a decade and that and then at some point you know they stopped they stopped and i and i and i kind of wonder exactly why that happened that could be a documentary or a short film for somebody else to you know um to dive into but um you know the precedent was kind of set you know that it empowered you know local um local social services to go ahead and go in and, you know, make value judgments on Native families and to remove kids from their homes. And what happened was, is that, you know, those 300 kind of test case kids then became about a third or some people say a quarter of all Native kids across the United States being removed from their homes. And then that led to, you know, a lot of Native communities coming together. And mind you, this is before the time of the internet. So, you know, it was really like by word of mouth where people had to figure out that this was happening, not just in their community, but everywhere. It was like, you know, this was <laughs> a designed Thing to remove Native kids, um, which is like really heartbreaking to think about, you know, just thinking that there is this, the government is just deciding, is making this decision um, to, to take, take kids and put them in non-Native homes. And for the most part, they were white homes. And for the most part, they were Christian homes. Um, I'm not a Christian, um, so I'll just put that out there. But you know, a lot of, um, you know, the Catholic Church, um, the Anglican Church, the Methodist Church, even a lot of these churches had a hand to play in this. And they were actually working with the federal government to also do these removals. Um, and I and I know that it's also similar in Canada, which is also heartbreaking because, um, you know, Christian values, I don't think, you know, at the heart are necessarily about that, you know, for for kids, you know, taking them from a loving environment. So, um, so from this mass exodus, you know, uh, a lot of grassroots activists, like I say in the film, rallied around in the 70s and decided that this is that, that enough is enough, they needed to put a stop to this. And a law was enacted in the United States called the Indian Child Welfare Act. And, um, you know, Congress put through the law. And currently that law is being challenged. It was recently heard on on November 9th in the United States Supreme Court about the validity 
of the, the validity of the law. And what makes this so insidious about the current challenge is that they're actually taking, you know, the opposition is taking this race-based idea um, to dismantle the law um, as like grounds, you know, to remove it on like an, um, uh, like, a, you know, with the United States Constitution, you have to have like equality under the law. And if, you know, one race is being privileged over another, you know, that becomes grounds to dismiss the law. But the fundamental misconception about that is that Native people, we are not a racial minority in the United States. We are a political minority. We have a government to government relationship with the federal government, with the state government as, you know, nations within this nation. And so um, to kind of usurp the authority that we have is just another form of um, colonial violence. The film really does point to how collective action forced the government to take action and there was legal cases around this of course also here right and um i guess for both of you the question is the narratives that we hear today at least here sort of still have very very big paternalistic vibes right so it's like the government is you know super generous and they're making apologies and Justin Trudeau slash Bieber is saying and singing, I'm sorry. And, you know, basically that's the framework of policy. And what is missing in that is a lot of what your film uh, addresses is both the personal stories, but also the, the policy challenges that are about collective action. So I, I would, um, uh, um, I wonder if either of you could comment or both of you could comment on that. I mean, I think that something that's been really clear for me and um, how my uh, very public learning curve has been around, <clears throat> there was a long period of time, you know, I was white identifying and uh, apologies seemed like the only option to me uh, at the beginning of this process. I was like, well, that's at least where we need to start is an apology. And I've since moved into a place of comprehending that that's like, no, that's not, that's, we can't start at apology. We need to start at recognition. Um, and, and in order for recognition for what has occurred, like that's the only way that an apology can have any, any weight to it. And at this point, my perception is that, that the narratives that are, you know, fed to the dominant culture and reiterated over and over um, is, is one that's very surface on this, like, well, I didn't do it. So I'm sorry that happened to you, population, <laughs> the entire huge population of sovereign nations, but, but let's move forward from this point and what needs to, or what is helpful and what I learned through my own embodied experience of making my way back is that, um, we got to this point from a series of very intentional choices to separate communities. And so a recognition and then some some kind of you know reciprocity 
would be imperative before an apology can even be heard or or um useful. So my sense is that what what is in some cases happening, beginning to, right? I mean, we're looking at every child matters. We're looking at um you know, if if it's not I think the go- the governments are at least beginning, you know, Secretary Holland has been making her way, the Department of the Interior has been making their way around and starting to listen. Um, And the listening has to happen before the apologies, in in my opinion. I don't know, Brooke, if you have more to say about that. I'm just thinking about, you know, like that idea of collective action and, and how specific you have to be with you know, what you want to have happen. And I think, you know, there was a collective action. It led to the Indian Child Welfare Act. And it's a good law. And in fact, you know, a lot of social welfare agencies consider it, you know, and we put this in the film, that it's the gold standard because it preserves kinship relationships. And, um, and that's like, you know, helpful across, you know, groups, like it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter if you are still able to um, be a part of your community in some way, like that's always beneficial to a child. Uh, So, so just like keeping that in mind, I think, you know, that is huge, because I mean, just that law, like preserving that law is huge. So for me right now, like, the collective action for, you know, folks in the United States. And I'm sure that, you know, a lot of our Canadian relatives have relatives in the United States that are dealing with these issues um, is to encourage, you know, people to make noise about this, you know, that it is important that the Supreme Court rule uh, on the side of Indian children and not on the side of big oil special interests who are actually behind the lawsuit. Um, So, uh, so that's, you know, kind of where, like, you know, I think about this kind of political movement currently, um, which is also, you know, a part of like, land back. I mean, you know, people are still wanting their land back and you know it's it goes hand in hand like you we want our land back we want our kids safe that's it (laughs) who wouldn't I also think that 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 point Brooke that you're making about kinship is is vital around um this intentional separation that that was uh I I think almost successful but in my case uh a failed attempt at at dismantling potential for collective action that that by in this course of like intentionally trying to separate children from their communities it was a weakening of the potential of the collective and that um as you said that that with ICWA being formed with aim um that these are these these policies or these responses to policy, which is really what the Indian Child Welfare Act was a response to the Indian Adoption Project, right? That came about from collective action and that now this um, attempt to dismantle it is once again like, well, let's weaken. Let's weaken the collective 
um, so that the land can continue to be taken and the, um, the tribes can be weakened. And that's really what's at stake currently um, if ICWA is dismantled. Maybe just build on that a bit, Kendra, because that just that connection you highlighted about land and how that's linked to families. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So with this current case that's in the Supreme Court, Brackeen v. Holland, um, the what is what is being attempted is to say that if this is what the opposition is saying. Um, the plaintiffs in the case are saying that this is a race-based law, which it's not. Um, and that if the law is overturned, it begs the question, what makes an Indian child? And if they determine that, um, we, so currently in the law, we native children, are required to stay with Native families whenever possible, their own kin if possible, their own relatives. If not their relatives, then someone else from their tribe. If not someone from their tribe, then someone from another tribe. But they should be raised in a Native family whenever possible. If the law is overturned and that is no longer the case, then Native children who are removed from their families, which I believe across the nation, certainly where Brooke and I live, um, Native children are very overrepresented in um, foster care systems, are overrepresented in child removal still with this law in place. And so if those children are removed and then placed in non-Native homes, then they are not necessarily able to enroll as tribal citizens um, because their ties are severed from their tribal community. And if the tribes do not have more citizens enrolling, their population will decrease. And if the population decreases, their reservation, what, what little land we have left comes into play. And when we look at who is paying for, who is funding the legal uh, defense or the legal plaintiffs, who is funding this law or this case, we follow that money and it is um, oil companies. It is, it is organizations who will directly benefit from the tribes being weakened. Um, because that's where, as we know, with Standing Rock and other, you know, these pipelines, the front lines of holding these oil companies back from their intention is indigenous populations. So if we weaken indigenous populations, the land is at further risk. Thank you so much both for taking the time to uh, speak today. Yeah, yeah. thank you.
Fly you